Hey, inspired person, welcome to another episode. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha. I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Cindy. She is easily one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. We delve into how Dr. Cindy became America's only dual virologist with a PhD, as well as an OBGYN with her medical degree. We talk about her fascinating journey from the island of Tobago to the U.S. You're going to learn so much about her and about the work that she does, but mainly you're going to see what it means to have determination and drive and that representation matters. Welcome to another episode of the Misadventures of an Inspired Woman podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Cindy. Dr. Cindy M.P. Duke is a highly respected and accomplished physician, entrepreneur, virologist, international telemedicine expert, motivational speaker, blogger, and influencer who has a highly engaged social media presence. She is an MD-PhD trained physician scientist trained at some of the top medical institutions in the United States, including Johns Hopkins Hospital and Yale School of Medicine. She is board certified in gynecology and obstetrics and fellowship trained in reproductive endocrinology and infertility in her day job. She is the founding physician, medical and lab director of the Nevada Fertility Institute, a full service fertility clinic and surgical facility. I can go on and on about all of the great things about you. One of the things, so I met Dr. Cindy on Clubhouse. <laughs> um, and one of the, the great things that you talk about is being like the only person who sort of has this dual expertise currently in terms of gynecology and obstetrics and coronavirus. Correct. Correct. So, Which, you know, it's kind of funny because I never quite thought of myself that way, but throughout the course of the pandemic, more and more people are like, you know, you're the only one, right? Why aren't you telling people? And I said, well, maybe I should just claim it. Let me own it and put it out there because it is true. And um, who knew it would be very useful in a time like this? And I mean, of everything else, Dr. Cindy is also Trinidadian by birth. (laughs) So that was great to connect with you that way. So, okay, I don't even know where to start in terms of your journey, like what brought you, like an MD, PhD, that's a, that's, that's a lot. So what yeah. ultimately led you to there? And then we'll sort of like work around that. that. Yeah. Well, you know, so I grew up in Tobago, the smaller island of the two in Trinidad and Tobago. And ever since I was about eight, I knew I wanted to be a physician. And by age 12, I knew I wanted to be some sort of a scientist. Like I knew that with so much confidence that my role model for what I wanted to grow up to become was Marie Curie. And I um, came upon her bio while exploring at the local library. So I always knew I wanted to be a physician and I wanted to be a scientist. How exactly I would get there, I wasn't sure. I won't lie because other than reading about people like that in textbooks and history books, I didn't really have that example in my local community per se. However, um, somewhere in my teens, I did meet my first ever black female doctor, which was a doctor in our island who had returned home to do sort of her community work. And I went with my mom, who had brought one of my younger cousins to the clinic to see the doctor. And I was fascinated. Like my mom always jokes that I came home and I started calling myself that woman's name, Dr. (laughs) So-and-so. You know, and um, I actually have a post about it on my Instagram, which was the day I went back home uh, about three years ago. And we were um, in what we call town. And I saw this woman. And I was like, mommy, mommy, is that her? <laughs> That's me, right? A grown woman <laughs> in her late 30s. And I'm fangirling. And my mom's like, let's go talk to her. I know her. And it turns out my mom, at the time when I we knew her, she wasn't married yet. But now she's married. And it turns out 
the gentleman that she's married to was my mom's high school classmate. So it turned into this big, just, you know, commiseration and bonding and so forth. But that's really how I knew at least that in so much as I wanted to be a physician scientist, I especially knew after meeting her as a teenager that someone who looked like me could definitely become a doctor. So we moved to the United States for the primary purpose of me going to medical school so I could pursue this dream. Even though we didn't have anyone in our immediate family who had done something like that, my mom, who was a single mom, was very determined to make sure her kids could pursue their dreams. So I went to college in New York City. I went to City College of New York or CCNY. Okay, part of the city university system. And there I majored in biochemistry and you know, it, it was an amazing program for me because, and the story of how I ended up at City College is pretty fun in that, you know, I came to the U.S. very much intending to go to the likes of an NYU, and then we discovered exactly how expensive it was, and it was actually an advisor at NYU who said to me, you know, if it's really expensive, why don't you consider applying to the CUNY system and then transfer back into NYU in your third year? So that it's cheaper and you can transfer it as a junior. So I applied to CUNY thinking, yeah, I'll start there and then I'll change later. But I went and I found such a community. For me, as someone who moved to the U.S. shortly after finishing high school, I definitely had an accent. You know, I was still very much learning the United States, even though we used to visit when I was younger. And City College was amazing because it's a school that's the hallmark of it is the large part of the population of the students were not born in the United States, which meant the accent wasn't off-putting. I didn't feel out of place. The faculty were also pretty diverse in terms of where they were from, their own cultural background. So I fit in which was great. And so I was a biochem major, pre-med. And um, my second year of college is when I did an away uh, summer program in Rochester, New York. And there was when I finally started hearing about MD, PhD programs and different programs like that. So by the time I came back to start my junior year of college, I finally had the framework. I knew, okay, not only can I go and become a doctor, because of course I was pre-med, but this is how I could incorporate science. This is how I can go about the process. And so, yeah, I applied to multiple MD-PhD programs. I was actually accepted into many programs. And for those who are listening who might be pre-med or not sure about the path, I actually initially accepted to go to a program in New York City. I was going to do MD-PhD in New York City. And then there was an incident with my younger brother in New York, and I got worried. I was like, what's going to happen to him if we stay in New York? He's eight years younger. And so I called up the people in Rochester because, one, I love the city of Rochester when I spent the summer there. I loved the people when I interviewed, particularly their program director um, at the time, who's still the director to this day, Dr. Obanian. And so I just called him up. I said, you know, I'm calling you because I know I already declined your guys's program, but I have my brother with me and I'd really like to get a better environment for him. I'm not just thinking about me. And I have this 14 year old and he said, listen, Cindy, as long as you've been accepted, you're always accepted. He said, fun story. You may not know about me, but I'm a single dad and mm. I have been raising my son ever since he was eight. And I understand what can be some of the challenges and concerns with raising a young man, um, especially in a big city. And so he arranged for us to come up to Rochester, really tour all the high schools, tour the neighborhoods, look at the different housing opportunities so that we could decide. And ultimately I moved there and my brother moved with me, but you know, that was how I arrived at MD PhD, that long journey from yeah. childhood to, you know, research as a, an undergraduate at City College, but also going away really let me know, okay, even though I really felt like the world centered around New York City, that summer away in Rochester really helped to open my eyes to the United States and how life could be even outside of the city. I like how you said as a little girl, you saw this person. As soon as you said that, I thought about I have a younger cousin. Um, she's a medical doctor. She trained in Cuba. And yes. for the longest while she was at the um, the Scarborough General Hospital. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So she went to clinics and all these different things. And and I, I mean, I'm, I'm always in awe of her, but just thinking of a lot of times she is the only black woman doctor yes. in that space. Um, and so for, for, for young girls to see that, I have to tell her that, like for young girls to see that, that's making a difference. She yeah. won't know. Yeah. Certainly, it took me what, 35, maybe 34 years <laughs> yeah. before I told Dr. Um, she's now Dr. Boris. She's one of the only two pathologists in country in Trinidad and Tobago. But at the time she was Dr. McDonald. And I just I thought she was everything, man. I I went home. I, I wasn't imagining myself as any of the heroes on TV or you know, Marie Curie was still very much who I wanted to model. But I definitely, when I pictured myself, I didn't picture Marie Curie. I pictured her. I pictured how I would look in a white coat based on how she looked in a white oh, coat. Oh, man, that is so powerful. Because I always say representation matters exactly. so much. So unlike you, I mean, I came to the U.S. at a younger age and I probably mm-hmm. closer to the age that your brother was around. Yes. Um, I came to the U.S. when I was uh, around 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And so the accent was a problem. The way I acted was a problem. <laughs> like so, being in Brooklyn in the nineties, yes. Caribbean, being of that age, it was not easy. It wasn't easy trying to easy. transition through everything and just survive. So that's mm-hmm. really good that just sort of like your dream was able to help take him out of that environment. Yeah. No, I felt you know because he was very much that kid who came here very quiet very much you know that's who we are right he'd keep to himself walk from school uh we had a routine which is he'd leave school head to the library stay at the library until the library closed um and you know he did that because so I did college but in the afternoons like on certain days of the week I worked as a cashier at a ten dollar store on Fulton Street down in Bedsty. so I would leave City College get on that A train come down to Fulton and Nostra come out go work at the store store would close at eight or nine at night and then I would take the bus the B44 for those who know Brooklyn mm-hmm. up to come home and then I'd pick him up at the library um so that was usually our routine then you know there are a couple of incidences where he was beat up on the way to and roughed up on the way to the library for silly things like once it was for a quarter the other time was they threw a basketball at him the other was they took a a, a VHS tape, you know, he used to borrow VHS tapes. <laughs> I feel like I've heard him tell that. that The VHS tape story, I feel like I've heard him yeah. tell that particular story. That one I, I think was really unnerving. Yeah, yeah, I think when I heard him tell that story, I was like, I know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, no, and that one was unnerving because I remember coming home. And so by that point, he was a little bit older. And so he could take himself home once he was done with the library. But I remember coming home and he was just really angry, just just really angry. And I was like, what's wrong with you? And he wouldn't say anything. And then he started crying and he talked about what happened to him today. And I was like, but why would they do that to you? They know you don't have money and they know the tape belongs to the library. It says so. (laughs) You know, and um, that was when I resolved in that moment, you know, maybe Brooklyn's not the best place for him. And so, you know, I think it was the greatest experience and decision to make. But, you know, I know, I tell people the really, really funny part of this story is when I called up the program that I'd already actually signed a contract with in New York City to say, you know, I have to reconsider um, for family reasons and I prefer to go to upstate New York. And before I could finish talking, you know, the then program director got all angry. He was, you know, he hung the phone on me, to be honest with you. He didn't even let me finish speaking. And the irony of it all was about three years later, there he was in Rochester having taken a chair position in Rochester after telling me who goes to Rochester or anyway you know and he's still there to this day so (laughs) (laughs) he's still there um and I tell people the story because of a few things and a few things I've experienced along the way his was probably the first most dramatic but you really have to make decisions for you Mm -hmm. you have to make decisions that you believe are the best for you and just stick with your decisions you know so I haven't regretted a single decision that decision was 
I'm going to Rochester because, you know, we came here as a unit. Also, I recognize that we came to the U.S. to facilitate my dream. But the one thing I didn't want was if my brother were constantly being beaten up and one of my um, mentors at City College, because he'd seen me outside just sitting outside, I guess, looking kind of in melancholy. And he said, you know, Cindy Duke, what's going on with you? (laughs) I said, you know, I don't know. I'm just, his name was Dr. Brown. I said, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on because my brother keeps getting beat up and I don't know why. And Dr. Brown said, well, you know, you, you, you want to be careful about that. That's kind of the way they, they do it. They'll beat kids up, keep beating them up. And then one day they'll say, if you don't want to get beat up anymore, join us. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, yeah, fear hit me. And I was like, no, 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 no. We can't lose my my brother with a wonderful soul who's only in this country because they came for me. They came for my dream. And so, yeah, I called up, you know, Dr. O'Banion and he was awesome. And that set in motion things that not only changed my life, but in terms of my brother changed his life because he went to a high school where the Spanish teacher was able to realize that he comes to life when he's in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was the one who introduced him to acting and said, you know, you should be an actor. You you really come to life with an audience. You need you need to do something that includes audience. So I'm not saying that couldn't have happened in New York City. Maybe it would have, but certainly, you know, I feel like that decision was awesome for me Mm -hmm. because I really grew in Rochester. Going to medical school in Rochester, where they had such a collaborative experience, where you could really choose how to do your PhD and who to work with. And I ended up working with an amazing mentor that let me really define how I would do my PhD and work on viruses and really the clinical side of things. And, you know, to this day, right, it's something that's a mm-hmm. part of who I am. So that really worked great for me. But I know for my family as well, it was really important for my brother because that brought him to a new place where that was no longer a reality. There was never a day where he had to come home and say somebody accosted me or somebody pushed me up in the corner or, you know, ruffled my pockets. None of that happened. Yeah. So that was that was great. I think I'm really struck by the sense of responsibility that you felt towards him and towards not just like you have this dream. And a lot of times when people have these, they're very tunnel vision, you know, but you knew that you couldn't just leave him behind to fend for himself. Exactly. No, it was important to me that he didn't become a statistic. I didn't want any of us to be a statistic. And you know, I credit that to my mom, too. That was just the way we all lived and grew up. And so, yeah, when I realized there is an opportunity here to achieve everything you want, but also to make sure your brother is not a statistic, like the thought of being in medical school and feeling proud about being in this fancy school in Manhattan, only to hear that things were not going well for my brother would have devastated me mm-hmm. and so the thought of that type of statistic was unacceptable just not even a thought the thought was we're all here together we're all going to rise together we're going to succeed together and um you know it's, i think part of it is being observant one of the things i had watched living in new york city especially and being an immigrant and a west indian immigrant mm-hmm. and having a very close knit west indian community was i did notice that there seemed to be a certain trajectory for many young teenagers who were teen immigrants into New York, which is, you know, you'd hear the amazing story of how great they were doing and then the fall off. Mm -hmm. And you'd always find yourselves asking, how did that happen? How did this happen? I'd certainly gone to enough events and around uh, a circle of family and friends and hear things. And I always thought, well, I know people, you know how we are in that culture. We like to talk about people and Mm -hmm, their children, mm -hmm. how they didn't do well. But for me, my concern every time I heard the conversations was, it's not how they didn't do well. It's, again, they seem to be falling trapped to the same pitfalls that we all are aware of in this city. And how do you avoid that? And so as somebody who was that curious and very much investigating that, yeah, I definitely didn't want that to happen. I was like, before, it's better to prevent it than have to figure out how to fix it should it happen. 
Wow, that's a, that's a, and so because of all those choices and all of that, you got put on the path that you you you're currently on. Your brother got put on the path that we keep referring to your brother, and nobody knows what we're talking about. But me and you. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you want to tell our listeners who your brother, where they might know, be familiar yeah. with your brother. So my brother is an actor. His name is Winston, Winston Duke. And most people know him from his breakout role as M'Baku in Black Panther. Um, and he's also been in the Us movie and now, you know, Avengers and a few other things. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, people know him now as being the kid who came from Rochester and did some amazing things out of Rochester, but we started in New York City. We started in Brooklyn. Absolutely. We really started in Tobago. Started in Tobago. We really started in Tobago. Yes. So we're yes. going to go ahead and credit you for, for the goodness that is Mbaku, because I know a lot of my girlfriends were like, so when next you go into Tobago? <laughs> how everybody in Tobago looks? So like, right? Y'all need to write. I know, yes, though. That, a lot of people in Tobago look that way, which is so funny, because when we go home, you're just amongst family. So... You're on this path. What made you decide to go into um, to specialize in gynecology and obstetrics? So, you know, it's so funny. I was that person in medical school who was open to everything. And I loved it all, but I realized a few things about myself, which is I like to promote self-awareness. You've got to be aware of self. Every decision you make, make sure it incorporates self. That's how I decided to move to Rochester. I thought of self and my brother. When I was choosing a specialty, I asked myself a few things like, you seem to like everything, but what really excites you? So I realized I love using my hands, right? I When I talk, I use my hands. But for me, no matter what happens in everyday life, I need to be active. So I realized, okay, you're going to need to do something that's surgical-based or has a lot of procedures. Um, and that left me with three um, top things, which was women's health, because I love working with women. I was very interested in a lot of the women's health disparities when it came to viruses and viral infections and female empowerment and how the lack of female empowerment sometimes puts women in very interesting positions where they're left with lifelong infections like HIV, even though, you know, if they had some more maybe autonomy, they might change that picture. So it was that versus neurology, because I love the question of of seeking a diagnosis. Um, The thing for me with neurology at the time was oftentimes once you had the diagnosis, say for early stroke and stuff, I didn't feel like for me there was enough action (laughs) 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 that followed. So I, I love neurology and to this day, you know, My neurology specialty referrals here in Vegas always laugh at how come they see so many referrals from me. And it's because, yeah, I'm always looking for those unique things. But those were the top two. And then the third was pediatric oncology, which, again, involved a lot of interactions with families and really delving into the mechanism behind things. But, again, I realized, well, it's doing a lot, but not enough procedures for me. And so that's how I landed on OBGYN, but specifically reproductive endocrine and infertility. You know, I tell people I knew six years before I would finish my MD degree that I'd be an REI. And that's because I was in an eight year MD PhD program. And during my second year as a medical student, you know, we do these rotations in different clinics and I was assigned to work with an OBGYN resident, but something came up and she had to be out. So there was a quick scramble and I was sent to the fertility clinic instead for my rotation. And I remember being on that rotation and just, and I guess it's also because I was a biochemistry major. So it was the first place where I really saw the science and chemistry of the human body being put to use and being manipulated in such a way to help people achieve dreams. So that was one. I also was really fascinated by the embryology side of it, which is the human development side and how our genes are turned on. And it was also By then, I was already beginning to delve into virology as well. And I saw a very unique position for virology and gene therapy as we were, you know, going through those rotations. And, you know, I say this to medical students all the time. If you're rotating, definitely make sure people see your enthusiasm because 
I think because they knew how enthusiastic I was, whatever the attendings had anything going on, they'll say, Cindy, do you want to come? So even though my rotation was initially supposed to be at the clinic, there I was in the operating room. That was a second year. I was going to do hysterosalpingogram procedures. I was in the laboratory watching ICSI, which is the injection of eggs with sperm. And um, so I really loved it then. And so I went into grad school and that's when I finally realized I could meld everything together, women's health, uh, infectious disease, virology, all this stuff and become my person. That's so fascinating. Just hearing you talk about it, you the scene you light up about it. <laughs> I, I love that because I think so many times people get into things for different reasons. I think like for me, I've chosen not to practice therapy because mm-hmm. I don't enjoy it. It does not bring me yeah. joy. The, the, you know, the conversations come up recently again and people always ask me and I'm like, I'm like, I'm good at it, but mm-hmm. I find it draining. It is. It is. <laughs> and that's the thing. You have to figure out what works for you and what lightens you up and what brightens you. Because, you know, like I have a friend, Dr. Renee, when she finished medical school, she said, that's it. I don't need to do that part. I'm interested in really broadcasting medicine and networking it to the people. And this is why I love telling people, you know, I don't see an MD degree, especially as a terminal degree. I see it as a a key that opens any door you want to go through. It's like a master key almost. Mm -hmm. And so there's no one way to use it. There's no one way to change the world with it. And I really, you know, whenever people, I meet younger people who are in our, going into our field, especially who are stressing out about the path. And I keep saying, you know, the path may deviate a bit, you know, certainly. So here I am, MD, PhD, you know, matching to the likes of a Johns Hopkins training at Yale and then deciding, hey, I'm going to open my own practice. You know, I'm going to start my own because as I went through it all, I also started seeing there were opportunities for something different. I started realizing if I wanted to be able to really, you know, make the change that I wanted to have, including the change in my homeland, meaning continuing to work there while being here, the only way I could do that is if I were the one steering my ship. And so that's how I went down that path. Again, it's a road less traveled. I know a lot of people didn't think it would be possible, but I definitely believed Because to be clear, someone with that type of training goes into a hospital. Yeah, most people believe you should Mm -hmm. go into a hospital, you should stay in what we call academia. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, being that observant person, one of the things I noticed was in the world of reproductive endocrine and infertility, it was actually very restrictive to stay in an academic role in many ways, unless you're at the head of a department. And that's Mm -hmm. because it's just so much noise to siphon through to make the difference, right? Mm -hmm. To really be the pioneer in the field, to be the, you know, what I was noticing also, which now has become well-known is the people who were truly pioneering our field were the people who were sort of sitting in between the academic, the fully academic and the fully private. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I decided. I was like, you know what? You need to form your own. You need to be your own institution. And that's how you're going to drive research forward. And, you know, I've had people who are like, you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do that. And we've been able to do it all, you know, like this past year, 2020, we presented nine research abstracts at our annual meeting. So it it turns out there are multiple ways to still make a mark and make a positive mark at that. I think the one thing that I'm getting from you is that you forged your own path. You did what was best for you and you're able to do all this groundbreaking work. And that's just amazing. Yeah, thank you. No, no, I think that's important. I tell people now there was a lot of help along the way. I never take credit for somehow like I just masterminded this all by myself. I think what was amazing though is self-awareness. You do have to know who you are and at least be grounded in how you want to live your life. Because what that means is no matter what else is coming, you can say yes, but I do have a certain view for myself. Mm -hmm. So the view doesn't have to be that you know you're going to be a fertility specialist or you know you're going to start a practice or you know you're going to go on social media, but you should at least know what it is about anything that makes you happy. 
so that you can be honest about when things aren't happy to say this isn't for me this isn't going the way it's supposed to because it's not making me happy and um yeah that's how it's been for me i i do things that work for cindy of course i always make sure i'm not hurting other people but i especially make sure i'm not hurting cindy in the way as well I love it. I have a friend that says, um, she has a saying, she says, no soul aggravation. (laughs) That aggravates Mm -hmm. her soul. She is not doing it. She's not going to be involved in it. So what, let me see. So we talked about your journey to the MD, PhD. Why Nevada? Yeah. So, you know, Nevada is a fun one. So when I was finishing up fellowship, as I started realizing, okay, I am going to go on my own. I started realizing, like I was saying, right, if you're steering your own ship, it also means you can steer your ship to any port you like. So the first thing I said was, what would you change if you could change anything? And I realized, well, you spent the last 20 years in the Northeast. You don't really like winter, Cindy. <laughs> in the, and not just in the Northeast. You were in the coldest part oh, that you can yes. find. Yes. And so, that, you know, there was one morning in 2015 where I woke up. I was there, you know, in Connecticut. And it was a particular, that particular winter, every Monday morning, you were waking up to about 10 to 12 inches of snow, which meant if it was weekly, that instead of, snow melting it was just piling up so it's just mountains of snow everywhere and um i had been to florida maybe two or three weeks before that and i guess my brain really just stuck with florida so i woke up that morning it's like late february early march and i walk outside and i was like what's wrong and i realized i walked outside in (laughs) flip-flops and my brain was like how did you even do that? You know, it's winter. Like, you know, it's snowing. You looked outside and you saw snow and you still walked out in flip-flops. I know it sounds weird, but that was my moment that said to me, um, you need to find a place where you can wear flip-flops whenever you want to. So I started a sun list, as I call it. And I was sun seeking. So I started looking at places like Florida. I looked at New Orleans. I looked at Houston. I looked at California. Um, And in the end, I decided on Nevada for a few reasons. I decided on Las Vegas because as I looked, I was also looking at what's the concentration of fertility specialists and fertility clinics in the areas. Um, What was the age group in terms of the population? Is it growing? And what age group is growing? Because certainly for a fertility specialist, I kind of need people who are interested in reproducing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) but having challenges. And, you know, Nevada fit the bill. So Nevada is in the top three fastest growing states in the United States and continues to be that way despite the pandemic. They they skew younger. So even though we have what we call the snowbirds, which is an older generation that comes here in the winter, et cetera, because it's not that cold. The other big generation that's moving into Nevada happens to be people between ages 23 and 40. Mm. And so with those demographics, the fast growth and the fact that it's sunny, also what helped was realizing, you know, because my brother by then had moved to California. And I thought of my mom, who really would go between the both of us. I thought, you know what? Nevada isn't bad. It's a 45-minute flight, which Mm -hmm. means, you know, as a family, we can access each other fairly quickly on most times. I love that. I love that you maintain that importance for your family. One thing that I like about you, um, like I said, we were in the Truman Clubhouse and (laughs) You, I, I read, so I read, I was like, oh, Dr. Cindy, you had the Trinidad and the, the, flag, the Trinidad flag. And then I was reading about the fertility stuff. Uh, but then you said something just really funny. <laughs> <laughs> After the guy told the story about the Empire State Building or whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. And then you were like, was that before or after you drove off the cliff? And I was like, <laughs> she is funny. I want to talk to her. I definitely yes. want to talk to her. And so what I really enjoy about you and whenever you're in a room in Clubhouse, I try to pop in, even if I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, because you have such an easy way about you and you, you're fun and you, you're talking mm-hmm. about things that are really important, but you're talking about it in such a way that people are able to digest it and you're having fun while doing it. Yeah. Is Thank that you. something that you're intentional about? I 
am. You know, I tell people and people always laugh now when I say, you know, I'm actually an introvert, but I'm an introvert who's worked very hard on being extroverted. And so... Exactly, you know, and um, it's because I did. So over the years, I've challenged myself on a number of ways. One, I was like, well, if you're always the introvert, how would the other introverts know how fun you can be and how would you find the other introverts? So that means if I'm in a social setting, I'm very social. One, because I want to make sure the other people who don't feel that comfortable in social settings know that they're welcome. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, the people who are truly extroverted can forget that the introverts are present. And so my job is to be that bridge. But also, I really, really believe that every single human being has value that they bring. And I know this very much so from having been that immigrant who came to a country where, you know, we moved to the United States with 3000 US dollars total, expecting to start a life, live a life. <laughs> and do great things. And I'm very aware of how much people made assumptions when they met us in the beginning and just, you know, people don't expect you to be of anything of value simply because they think they know who you are based on how you look or where you're from or how you sound. And, um, I always like to create very inclusive and welcoming spaces for that reason. And I do the same thing on Clubhouse, you know, and I love a good joke. I'm not going to lie. I love a good laugh. <laughs> you, you're funny. One thing that I really admire about you, and this is something I've been trying to figure out, is how you've taken your training and all the things that you do, and you've really been able to move into like the social media space. And you've like, you're, you're a legit businesswoman. Like there's so many people like that use the words entrepreneur and they throw out right. things like six figures. You know, that's a big thing on the clubhouse, these six figure people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been avoiding the six figure, seven figure rooms because it's true. There's so many of them. And when I go in, I, in the beginning, my first few days, I went into some of them and I was like, but that's not how that happens. They're right. telling the truth. Well, a lot of them are scammers. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, so you're scamming people, you know, like I, there's one room that really irked me and I meant to blog about it because, you know, it was titled, I want to help a thousand women do this thing this year. And as part of the conversation, you know, the pitch is go to this website and schedule to talk with me and I'll help you, you know, achieve this thing this year. So I was like, let me type in that website and see what's up. I typed it in and immediately before even telling you what the service is, like it still doesn't say how they're going to help, but they're asking you to commit $997, you know, right now, sign up. And if you say, no, I don't have the money, then it says, well, how about three payments or four payments for what would be about, I think, $1,100. And I was like, oh, so this is really just a ploy for the person to make a million dollars. Yeah, be because they, they don't even have, it's like I was telling someone, people always tell me, oh, you should get into the coaching, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, the coaching thing sounds like a pyramid scheme to me. Like, in some ways, coaching is tricky. Yeah. Right? No. <laughs> I never call myself a coach for that reason because it concerns me. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, it's very. It's very concerning because you have people that may, I don't know that they've even coached anyone, but then they're starting to train other people how to be coaches. And that's really how they're bringing in their money. Yes. Right. That's how that sounds like. I told my girlfriend, I said, this is a parabens scheme. Yes. Well, that was why, you know, I told a couple of friends, this is why I started doing the rooms I was doing on Clubhouse, because I started going from room to room. I said, OK, so if I'm a healthcare professional, what do I really want to learn here? Mm -hmm. And am I able to learn it from these people? Am I able to learn? And I was like, well, that's not that's not how social media works for a doctor, for example. Mm -hmm. When I was going into some of these social media rooms, I was like, that's not how that works for us. And we're not in these rooms trying to learn how to get a $20 gift. <laughs> you okay, know? I'll get, I'll get I somebody like, to send you um, 
yeah, something. I, I need this. You know, I was like, we're not trying. I was like, I'm not trying to get a bottle of gummies so I can say I'm an influencer. That's and that was the first thing actually. When I went on social media, I didn't go on social media thinking I'd become an influencer. Mm-hmm. I went on social media one because I thought this would be a great way to talk about the things that my patients seem to not know about, or my patients keep bringing me information that's clearly not true. Mm-hmm. They believe is vetted because they found it online. And so my primary role when I went on social media was to debunk myths, to present real information. And along the way, I just also started sharing bits and pieces about my life mm-hmm. and realizing people like all of that, you know, and I was like, okay, so one is again, defining who you are, defining how you are going to share on social media, because I'm not that lady who's going to be out there in the bikini very regularly. And <laughs> said very yeah. regularly. Notice she yeah. didn't say not at all. Well, not at all, because I did one photo once that shows me from behind in a swimsuit. And so I realized I can't say never. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm not upset with people who are, who are in this, right. you know? But it's not your Um, brand. It's not not my brand. Exactly. And I really want people to know that you can do things on social media within your comfort zone. You don't have to be like other people. And that's the important thing is you don't have to be on social media. I have never to this day done any endorsements on social media. And I don't know if I'll ever will. Mm -hmm. And I've never felt pressured in the sense that, oh my God, well, then I'm not legit. But I was like, I'm not that person who's going to be talking about something I don't use regularly, nor am I going to be the person doing a post and telling people, you know, do this for 10% off or do this for, (laughs) you know, while I'm the one getting money on the back end. I was like, that's not me. Mm -hmm. Now there are people who do that and that's fine because they're comfortable with it. But for me, it wasn't, that was not my comfort level. But I like, I like that you're able, I I just, listen, I could sit here and listen to you talk about everything (laughs) all day. But I like that you're intentional about social media. And I think for a lot of, of professionals, you're trying, I, I know that's something I've been trying to figure out. And a lot, big reason of why I've gotten on social, I got on social media was because I was going to events and seeing people saying things and, I'm, and people are following them because they were a mental health advocate or, yes. and I'm like, that's not accurate. This is not exactly. true, but for some, but, but then I was like, well, well, Keisha, you can't get mad at them because they figured out how to get people to listen to them. Exactly. You have to get out there talking about it as well. And that was what I realized. And, you know, eventually the audience finds you, which Mm -hmm. is funny. You know, you don't have to do any gimmicks. You don't have to be all, you know, weird about something. The audience will find you. Um, You will at times, yes, on social media, there's going to be someone who's going to try to challenge you because they're looking for their 15 minutes. And so it's important to know that and not engage. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the nice thing about social media is you can choose to not engage. And I feel like the same thing on Clubhouse. You know, I personally have chosen now to refine and define where I go and which groups I see and which events I see or enter because I'm like, no, I don't need that. And I don't need to be drawn in. You know, I found myself on a stage of one of those scams where I was like waiting. So I kept saying, just keep it going, Cindy. And eventually you get to say, how did you really do this? Because there's no way you made a million dollars in three months selling something that's $5 and you're still making money selling the same thing when none of us are seeing that thing around. And I was like, no, you're really here to get people to come pay you money to learn something that's impossible Mm -hmm. um, or to buy your stuff wholesale, which is a wholesale pyramid scheme, right? Mm -hmm. And you're back to the Lululemons and all of those MLM things that happen sometimes. And so, but in that, I was doing it and it was moving slowly. And eventually my brain was like, why though? Why do you need to do this? Is Mm -hmm. this going to help you in any way? That literally happened to me yesterday. Not yeah. in, like I was avoiding a lot of the rooms that were talking about the things that happened in DC. Yeah. And um I think somebody might have pinged me in and it was going okay for a while. And somebody asked the question. So I raised my hand to go up to answer it. But then 
you know, a lot of people, I keep saying people need therapy. People need to address their trauma because exactly. like this happened in our world. A lot of times the place that they speak from is from the place of their trauma. And so their exactly. conversations are not helpful at all. And so it just started getting, and I just, I didn't need, I just left. I just, yeah, left. I was me. like, I was like, you just changed your whole mood mm-hmm. and you worked so hard to avoid this. And now you're here in this space and exactly. it's not affirming to you at all. So I, just I like that. That's exactly the reason. So I was like, you know what? Exit this room and exit the person you were following that seemed to keep dragging you towards to these rooms. <laughs> I can't figure out who those people, you know, they're, they're usually in my hallway, but yeah. I don't really go into them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a good point. I need to figure out who it is. That's, that's always, I think I know who it is. Yeah, no, it, it was two, there were two people who I didn't know before Clubhouse. And I started realizing you're probably never really going to know these people now that you've seen how many of these rooms they're in and they're usually part of the moderators and stuff. And I was like, so if you don't agree with this, it seems like your philosophies really won't align. Yeah. And in order to stop seeing these rooms, hit unfollow. <laughs> Listen, anytime I see you doing a room, I'm like, oh, let me go in there and see what's happening because I'm sure to get some knowledge and information because no, I really, I really like how you sort of set up your stuff. You do your social media, you do your writing, you do your entrepreneurial thing on top yeah. of your practice and you're still doing research. And so I think that that's a great model that I often say as, as a psychologist, they never taught us how to do business. No, they never taught us how to, Mm -hmm. you know, market yourself or anything like that. And I think that what you're doing is a great model of all of that. So if you see me following you around, it's because I'm trying to see what you're doing. It's okay. No, you're welcome to follow me around. It's funny. I don't know. What was it? There was something last night. One of my friends pinged me into a room. Ah, um, no, it was two rooms, but it turns out it was being ho- one of the hosts was the same person in both rooms. And so the first room, I, you know, I raised my hand and she called me up and I was introducing myself. And then the people that followed me introducing themselves all said, oh, I followed Dr. Cindy into the room. And then about an hour and a half later, she was in another room with another friend of mine. So I went into the room because I saw a friend of mine listed, you know, when you're in the hallway. And so my friend brought me up on stage. And then <laughs> as I, she asked, the person asked me, you know, tell us about yourself. So I introduced myself and the person who was in the other room said, oh my God, I just met her and she's so amazing. And then she was like, let me guess, the next two people, do you know them? I said, <laughs> yes. And she was like, <laughs> she's like, y'all, she's got an entourage. She has an entourage. Listen, as a, let me get Dr. Cindy on my podcast before Clubhouse realizes how truly amazing she is. Because, yeah. yeah. I like Clubhouse. Clubhouse has been, for me, one of the best ways to meet amazing people. And, you know, I don't know that we would have found each other the way I know. algorithm is set up. No, I definitely, I don't, ha- I don't really, you're probably the only medical doctor that I followed. I thought, you know, and then, yeah. Yeah, no, it's kind of, it's interesting because, you know, I've met you, I've met a lot of exercise physiologists, doulas. I think I only knew of one doula on Instagram for a long time. Um, Twitter, similarly, you know, Twitter, I really try to curate lists and follow as many people through the list because otherwise you don't see their tweets. But Instagram is even harder because you can't even curate Instagram. The algorithm does it for you. Yeah. So this is what I'm loving about Clubhouse. And like you said, intentional, right? The moment you get intentional about what you're going to listen to and what you're going to present, Clubhouse is amazing. Yeah. No, I'm so grateful that I met you because I was like, why am I up at this hour? Don't like, (laughs) right? This don't make no, this makes no sense at all. I'm so grateful that I met you and that we've been able to connect. One thing that I want to ask you um, as we head towards wrapping up is a lot of my listeners are kind of in that, you know, 25 to 43 age range woman. Um, One of the episodes that I did last season was about fibroids. um, I I had one removed about Mm -hmm. two years ago and it was it was a little bitty thing, but it was wreaking havoc on my life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the woman I was interviewing, she was talking about sort of like her natural way of dealing. And I was like, no, I told them, take this thing out of me now. Yes. As soon as I figured out what it was. Um, what types of things, especially now that we're living in this time, what types of things should women in that age range sort of be thinking about, mm-hmm. asking their doctors about? Yeah, well, I think definitely, especially for women of color, uh, Black women, Latinx women, the big thing to know is nine out of 10 Black women will have fibroids mm-hmm. in our lifetime. Now, nine out of 10 of us will know we have them but we'll have them. And so the bigger question is, are we having symptoms? And it's really about whether you're having symptoms and the location of the fibroids when they're causing symptoms. Um, So that's the first thing to know. The second I love telling people is just because you have fibroids doesn't mean you're destined for a hysterectomy. And so it's important for you to know that, but also for you to remind whomever you might be talking to about your fibroids that if you're not interested in hysterectomy, I don't want a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. because there are so many other options available mm-hmm. um, and if you're someone who's young reproductive age your fibroids certainly can impact your life in terms of your periods how heavy they are it, they can impact your life if you were to get pregnant it can lead sometimes to miscarriage or preterm labor and delivery depending on where the fibroid is located so it's all about location 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 um, fibroids growing in some places can cause painful effects, so what we call dyspareunia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important to, if you hear the word fibroid, what you want to follow up with is where is it located? What size is it? Because some of them are very small and not very problematic. Others are very large and can be problematic. And then there's one particular type, which is known as a submucosal fibroid. It's the one that has all of it or part of it in the cavity of the womb. And those are the ones that really are the ones that cause bleeding issues and could cause issues with fertility. And so if you're someone who especially is either anemic, bleeding issues, history of miscarriage, uh, infertility, then you should definitely say, have you checked the cavity of my uterus for fibroids? And that's because our traditional or conventional ultrasound um, looks at fibroids in the wall of the uterus and on the outside surface, but it may not necessarily see the one in the cavity unless Mm. someone looks in your cavity. So um, I tell people to make sure you emphasize that because the surgery for that is very simple. It doesn't require any cuts or anything on your belly, but if it's not discovered and treated, oh, it can make your life a living hell because Mm -hmm. you're tired all the time and you don't know why if you're bleeding, you're Um, feeling like you're deconditioned and can't really exercise or walk city blocks or go up and down stairs because you're losing so much blood or you're iron deficient and really, you know, always iron deficient. So it's very important that people look into that one. And I would say that to me as a OBGYN fertility health specialist, that's always the big surprise to me when I meet, especially women of color is they have a lot of those symptoms I just described, but no one ever looked in the womb cavity. Mm. Wow. Okay. I'm just like, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know it's a lot, but the big thing is, If someone says they see fibroids in your uterus, don't be alarmed just yet. Mm -hmm. The next question is, where are they? And what problems have they been causing me? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and of course, what size are they? But if they're small, not causing problems, you can live with your fibroids. Um, But if they say, yes, let's talk about the fibroids because I believe it's causing your issues, then you should listen closely, listen carefully, and look at how you can get them removed safely without losing your uterus. And Mm -hmm. the surgery for removing which is known as myomectomy, is very safe. Mm -hmm. The risk of hysterectomy is very, very low, um, but we cannot say any risk is zero. So that's why there's always a potential. Yeah, yeah. Mine was super easy. I was back home the same day. So I was grateful for that. That was the second doctor I had. The first one, yeah, that wouldn't have worked out. Yeah, no, that's the key, you know. It's really important to know who you're talking to about it and making sure your values about your womb are aligned. (laughs) I like that. Values about your womb. That's something, what kind of values should we be having about our womb? (laughs) 
Well, you know, I think it's important, right? For a lot of us, we were raised to think that our womb, our uterus is part of the badness that makes us a woman, right? Mm-hmm. You know, even the name woman is a man with a womb kind of, you know, that's what the word comes from. And so we we see it as the nuisance, the monthly nuisance that causes the bleeding we don't want. We see it as so much more of a problem. It's the thing that gets pregnant even when we don't <laughs> want to be pregnant, you know, <laughs> so a lot of us have this adversarial relationship psychologically with our womb in my opinion oh my gosh that is so (laughs) profound isn't it yes (laughs) true right have you written something about this i haven't yet but i should put it in writing we will all read it we should because we are we're at we're at odds with our womb and so you know we're raised to believe so many things about it as so wrong your your the first time your womb starts bleeding everybody tells you don't let people touch you don't this don't that you know don't this and suddenly you're being judged as a woman like your childhood leaves you so you feel like your womb stole your childhood right it's traumatic, yeah. And you're like, why didn't anybody even tell me I have something in my body that's going to do this to me? <laughs> you know, and that's something I also use social media for is talking just about, I guess I would call it room positivity, but especially encouraging people to tell their children, you know. So my mom, for example, now has a, a show that she does on Facebook and I help her produce it. And a big part is I- I love that. <laughs> you're like, my mom has a show up. Facebook. Your mom had a birthday the other day. I saw you post it. She did. Her birthday was January 2nd. How old is your mom? 65. Your mom is 65 and she has a a show on Facebook. Okay, go ahead. She does. She she has her own following and a lot of, you know, women who are either currently single mothers or were single mothers. She also has a lot of women who were immigrants to America as well. And so, you know, they definitely can identify with her about the working as a domestic worker in New York City, doing the live-in jobs and so forth. And she's very vocal about this stuff. You know, even the people she worked for are there. (laughs) It always cracks me up sometimes. But I'm like, you know, they're proud of her, I guess. So they're okay with her saying all the things about the mistreatment. You know, if we're honest about the things that immigrant women have had to undergo in New York City, particularly the ones who emigrated to the U.S. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Mm -hmm. And they came with good intentions. They came to create a life for their children. But Mm -hmm. many of them ended up having to leave children behind. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, and so they had to leave their kids behind while they were here raising people's children. Um, For some of them, they brought their families here, but they still needed to continue working in those roles, which meant they weren't really present at home Mm -hmm. as their children were growing up. Um, You know, like for me, even when my mom was doing that kind of work, I was there so I could be there with my brother. And that was how I was able to know, okay, it's time for us to move. You know, this isn't going to last much longer if he stays in the city. But so it's things like that. So one of the things I talk with my mom about, though, and we work hard with her show, is just asking people, even of her generation, we're talking about sex, periods, anything is so taboo. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, using that partly as an icebreaker, but also to really get the audience to understand that womanhood and parenthood is more universal than we think. Mm. And hearing just how, you know, hearing someone who's in her 70s talk about the fact that she in her 70s and technically nobody's ever talked to her about sex or periods to this day even though she's now a 70 something year old grandmother mm-hmm. right which means if nobody's ever talked to her she's also never talked to back to her family to tell them which is part of our issue talks to us about it and we don't talk to people about it so like fibroids right fibroids run in families yet most of us as we grew up we were just told heavy periods happen in our family that's just that's our thing thing. painful periods are a thing and many people if your family is uh christian and religious they actually tell you we're paying for eve's original sin yeah even more you hate this womb this thing that is the meaning of eve's sin because apparently as they were being tossed out of the garden of eden she was told that she will toil and she would be in pain and she would bleed for the rest of her life so you see that as here is the reminder Mm -hmm. That I'm all sin. And the most sinful part of me is actually what keeps humanity going. 
Hmm. You know, I could do all sorts of things. I could take eggs out of the uterus. I could put sperm and egg together in the laboratory. But a womb has to grow that fetus. A womb has to give that next generation life. And we have to sterilize amazing that is such that if you were to use it for that you don't suddenly start needing to realize you have it today it's important just the same way we take care of our face that we take care of all the other parts we get our hair done we your womb is the same thing and it need not be disconnected or adversarial with you <laughs> oh okay so okay you got to write that piece and do a whole we we, we could do a whole talk about that um, I have to I make a note. I'm making a note now so I don't forget. <laughs> I think it's I think it's powerful. I think it's it's really powerful the the adversarial relationship that women have with their wombs and with their bodies as a whole. We do. Yes. Um, I, I think that's a really powerful thing. So I you know, sign me up if you if you if you want to you know include other people in this conversation. But I think definitely yes. um, you gotta write this. The world needs to hear it. <laughs> I agree. Now we'll do a compilation because it's important that we, I, I'm very big on legacy, which is, okay, it's not just what I'm doing about life today, but how are we making sure the next generation knows this stuff earlier, mm-hmm. feels empowered about this stuff earlier you know it's like i recently i want to say it was november october i was part of a pitch where these gen z zers were pitching a company of theirs all about periods you know that they're starting and when it was all done i remember one of them saying dr cindy you were just smiling the whole time i said you know why because i was so proud you guys pitch and talk so passionately about important period education and period health is you guys are 20 i was like this this is amazing you know when i was 20 years old periods were still something you were scared to talk about you know when i look back and i myself have struggled with fibroids and i realized that i was with fibroids even at 18 and 19 i was already having those heavy periods and the accidents and having to be very cautious about how i got off seats at certain times Mm -hmm. in my cycle because of the accidents Mm -hmm. and the leakage Mm -hmm. and I was like, who would I have felt comfortable with? You know, I, I actually just decided maybe I'm just not good at this. I remember mm-hmm. thinking I might not be good at periods because oh, other people don't seem to have accidents. Other people don't seem to have to race to the bathroom. Yeah. Ever. And here I am needing the heaviest pads and the biggest tampons or wearing them all at once and still racing to the bathroom within oh. hour, you know, two hours. Yeah. And so I remember thinking, maybe it's just you. you. You're not doing this right. It's not fitting right. Maybe out of, I'm not going to lie to you. I remember thinking maybe anatomically have a bad design. A design. <laughs> oh my right. goodness. The scientist in me was like, maybe there's a design flaw because why do you seem to have accidents and other people never seem to have You know what's so funny? I feel like I was the opposite. So a lot of my girlfriends, I would see them going to the bathroom with like two sanitary napkins. I'm like, where are you going? So when (laughs) I felt that change and the regular little plaid wasn't working anymore and I graduated to those big old, I swear they were overnight ones. (laughs) Not even (laughs) overnight. The big, like almost like the most. Yeah. Yeah. Those ones. And they still were, I was like, no, something's not right. That. Okay, the last thing I'm going to ask you before I really wrap it up. <laughs> what should women be doing in terms of like promoting positive or good womb health? Yeah. Well, definitely, I say first thing is knowing your cycle, right? It's really important to know your cycle. And it you shouldn't just know your cycle because you're planning pregnancy. We should all be aware of our cycle so that we know when it changes, like how you knew, you know what, something's different here. Something's not right. And so we do need to know how our periods work. You know, I still meet a lot of my own patients where I'm like, when was your last period? And it's like, mm, I don't know. Oh, I would help my app so fast. I'm like, wait a minute. 
I said, more and more of us need to use apps. You know, as life gets busy, it's just not something you're going to remember. Um, but it's important to have that sense and concept of, is it heavy? Is it light? I know it's hard to define heavy versus light for most of us because it's such a subjective thing. And, you know, like in my case, I thought my period was just me not handling flow well. When it turns out mine was so excessive for so long that it needed to be addressed. So it's that sort of stuff, staying aware of it. Um, and again, being acutely aware of when things change, you know, if you're in a relationship where you're having penetration and you're like, ah, things feel like it hurts, it's not enough to say maybe it's that your partner is too big. If suddenly things are hurting, probably something's changed have it looked at before it's way long later mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah okay well i'm gonna wrap up with our lightning round and that's why i just asked you random questions <laughs> and so you answer as quickly as you can don't think about it okay. too much okay Let's do that. so the first question is what is your favorite color pink okay um your favorite dessert Chocolate, anything chocolate without milk. <laughs> okay. So you like dark chocolate then? I love dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, who is your celebrity crush? Uh, so corny, but it's Idris Elba. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing corny about Mr. Elba. <laughs> everybody, everybody says it, but it's true. <laughs> it's the accent. It's the accent. Um, what is your guilty pleasure? Ooh, I like spas. So yeah, anything spa-like, relaxation, I really, I've built a culture around (laughs) relaxation. I love that. I love that. (laughs) My last question is, who plays Dr. Cindy in the story of her life? And what kind of genre is it? Is it a musical? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? It It would be a dramedy. Okay. Dramedy. (laughs) It would be be a dramedy. And who would play me? I used to think, oh my God, what was her name there? Her name is blanking for me, but she's this comedian. She was um, Ross's girlfriend on Friends when he had the black. Oh, Aisha Tyler? Aisha Tyler. Okay. I always thought Aisha Tyler could play me in that of her height. How tall mm-hmm. she is. How tall um, are you? Six foot tall. I'm five eleven, three quarters. I round up. So yes. So Aisha, I think, is six foot as well. So I always thought Aisha Tyler. I could see someone like Gabrielle Union as well. But somehow I've always thought if there was to be someone playing Cindy, it'll be the Aisha Tyler type. And it would be a dramedy. It would be a dramedy because, you know, my life, I like to laugh. So there'll need to be some funny things in there. But I'd also want to see a bit of drama. It could even be a dramedy with musical competence because I love musicals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Me too. I always say my life is a musical. Yeah, I love a good musical, man. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think it brings everything. You can get the drama in it. You can get the comedy and then you get the music and the movement. And that just brings in more color. I love it. So tell all my listeners, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm across social media. Um, you can find me at Dr. Cindy M. Duke. So C-I-N-D-Y M is in Mary Duke. So D-R-C. Cindy M. Duke. I'm on pretty much all platforms. I, I'm even on TikTok, even though I have one video there. <laughs> um, technically, you can find me on TikTok. And you can find my website, drcindyduke.com. And there you'll find everything about me, including my podcast. I started a directory of Black women physicians. You can find information there if you're looking for someone in terms of presentation mapping and um all my blogs and so forth are there too i love it thank you so so much for taking the time to talk to me i've had a great time i talk, i could talk like i said i'll talk to you all day i love listening to you you're just <laughs> so you. full of knowledge and this season our theme is dope black women doing dope black so women things. and that's who you are and i just appreciate that i've been able to meet you and you're doing all these great things to elevate black women you're representing for our culture and yeah. thank you <laughs> so so much dr cindy thank you so much Dr. Keisha. Wow, I don't know about you, but I am so inspired by that interview. I definitely learn a lot every time I talk to Dr. Cindy or I hear her talk. 
Be sure to hit subscribe and rate the podcast. I also still need some written reviews. So if you can please take two minutes to write a few words as to how much you enjoy the podcast and things you have learned from it. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Keisha. That's D-R underscore K-E-I-S-H-A. Check out my website for blogs. That's drkeisha.nyc. And also check out my YouTube channel for the latest videos. And remember to be intentional.